Mark today, Mark chapter 16, and take a look at his account of the resurrection. The first eight verses of the 16th chapter of Mark. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. He said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Back in 1992, a letter came from the Health and Human Services Department to a resident of Greenville County, South Carolina. The letter said, your food stamps will be stopped at the end of March because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if your circumstances change. We laugh at that. But that's the story. His circumstances changed. He was dead, and now he's alive again. He's risen from the dead, and indeed, he is Lord. That's what our text is all about. Mark says here, when the Sabbath was passed, in verse 1, he's referring to the weekly Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath began at 6 o'clock on Friday evening and would end at 6 p.m. on Saturday evening. Now, we mark our days at midnight. They mark their days at sundown. And so we're 12 hours into the day after the Sabbath had passed. Luke 24, verse 1 says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. So probably maybe 6 o'clock in the morning. That's Sunday, the first day of the week, the third day. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, buried on that day. He was in the grave all day Saturday. He's been in the grave for nearly 12 hours on Sunday, which covers three days in the grave. The Jews would commonly refer to a part of the day as the entire day. But the most important day of the week for the people of God up until this event of the resurrection had always been Saturday, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, one of the Ten Commandments, one of the the laws, the law of Moses that you observed strictly. But what happened on this day changed everything. Since that weekend, no Sabbath has been necessary. No Sabbath is required. No Sabbath is even legitimate. The Sabbath and all it stood for was passed. The last Passover ended when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as the new memorial feast commemorating his death. And from now on, men would rest not in a Sabbath, but they would rest in a Savior, Jesus. 
Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, you remember the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We find our rest now in a Savior. So everything changed forever on that Sunday morning. The pattern and the practice of the early church was to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Acts 20, verse 7 says, And on the first day of the week when we had gathered together to break bread, we see that that was the, the, the that infers that that's what they did regularly. The regular observance of the church to meet around a table of remembrance or to, to take communion together. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay by in store as the Lord has brought, bless him. And Paul spoke to the Corinthians about their giving on the first day of every week. Revelation 1, verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What day is the Lord's day? Sunday, the first day of the week. So what happens here with the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. So I want you to notice this morning, first of all, a rock that was removed. It's in the first four verses. It's early Sunday morning. The women returned to the tomb. They had been at the crucifixion of Jesus. They had watched it. They had seen him die there. They had witnessed his body being taken from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus helped him. They had witnessed them wrapping him in linen laying him in a tomb. They had followed to see where the tomb was, and now they come back on a Sunday morning. John 20, verse 1 says, it was still dark when they came. Now, why did they come back? This is important. They did not come expecting a resurrection. They've got burial spices with them. They had followed Jesus, they had loved Jesus, they had adored him, they had served him, they had worshipped him, and now they wanted to honor him by making sure his body was prepared in a proper way for, for a proper burial. That's why they came back. And their biggest concern was, how are we going to move the stone? It's too big for us to move. How are we going to get that stone moved away from the entrance of the tomb? Because the door of the tomb, the entrance to the tomb, there would be a great, heavy, round-like stone that would fit into this sloping groove, which would run down an incline, so once the, the, whatever was holding it up was knocked out of the way, the stone and the gravity, they would just roll into place. It's been estimated that a stone of that type would weigh a ton and a half to two tons. How are these women going to move it? Apparently, they had no idea what had happened on Saturday with the chief priests and the Pharisees. Their only concern was getting someone to roll the stone back so they could put spices on the body of Jesus. But what had happened the day before? Well, Matthew 27, verses 62 through 68, tells us the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and told Pilate that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead. So they told Pilate, you better make that tomb secure, 
Because if you don't, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell everybody that he's risen. So Pilate gave them a guard. They put his Roman seal on that tomb. That tomb was not to be opened. That body was not to be removed. And if the guard allowed that to happen, it would mean they would be executed. The death penalty. Matthew 28, 2, though, says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And Matthew says the soldiers were so frightened, they became like dead men, which means they did what? They fainted. They passed out due to fear. So, did the soldiers know that Jesus had legitimately risen from the dead? Yeah. They knew. They absolutely knew. So did the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. They knew. And Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, says the soldiers went and told them what had happened. And the religious leaders gave them money to keep their mouths shut about what really happened and to lie and tell people the disciples came and stole the body while we were sleeping. They knew. Watchman Nee said, Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. And he's right. John MacArthur wrote and said, Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. Christ arose. That rock was removed. But I also want you to see a rock renewed this morning. Renewed. Mark says the women looked up and saw the stone had been rolled back. And the, the Greek words there convey the idea of attention and surprise and even joy. Their problem had been solved. They're not going to have to move that stone. They're not thinking about a resurrection. You see, very few people took seriously what Jesus had said about his resurrection. Mary of Bethany did in John chapter 12. And so did the Lord's enemies. Isn't that interesting? The Lord's enemies took it seriously, which is why they went to Pilate and why Pilate sent his guard and put a seal on the tomb. Now, although the Lord had told them repeatedly to expect it, they were completely taken by surprise by it when confronted with the mounting evidence. And they still, with the evidence, refused to believe it. Now, in verse 5, it says, In entering the tomb, these women saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. <laughs> you would be too. Right? We'd all be alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? The exact same words Pilate instructed to be written on the sign on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the phrase that the angel used. Pilate wanted to make sure everyone knew who this was, and so did the angel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. And listen, the religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, all of them, they never denied the empty tomb. 
They never, they never did. And that's important. The women knew the tomb was empty. The disciples knew the tomb was empty. The religious leaders knew the tomb was empty. That is the irrefutable testimony of history. No one ever pointed to an occupied tomb and said, uh-uh, he's right over there. No one ever did that. No one ever denied that Jesus' tomb was empty. Josh McDowell, probably one of the most respected Christian apologists in the world, said after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men. Or, it is the most fantastic fact of history. It's one or the other. And he believes it's the most fantastic fact of history, as I pray we all do. A rock renewed? What rock was renewed? Jesus, the rock. Romans 9.33 says, as it is written... See, I lay in Zion, or Jerusalem, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That rock is Jesus, the very one. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, Of the people in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings, they all ate the same spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. What does the old hymn say? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ the rock who was crucified and dead and buried was renewed and raised from the dead. A rock removed, a rock renewed, and lastly, a rock redeemed. Redeemed. In verse 7, we have the single rock, we have the solid rock, and now we have the sinful rock. What are we talking about? Dave's song talked about it. In verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. That he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You remember back in Matthew 16 verse 13. Jesus and the disciples have come into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He begins to ask them who do people say that I am. They gave him the common answers of the day. But he said but who do you say that I am. It was Simon Peter that said thou art the Christ. The son of the living God. You remember that. And Jesus said blessed art thou Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter. The Greek word is Petros, which means a little rock, a small stone, one you could pick up and throw. I say unto you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, he used a different Greek word for that one, <clears throat> the word Petra, which means bedrock. A big solid slab. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Bring up the next slide, Pam. 
That is a picture of Caesarea Philippi where Jesus may well have uttered these words. There are a lot of rocks there. There's a lot of small ones, there's some big ones, and there's some big solid bedrock there. And I wonder if Jesus wasn't maybe pointing and using an object lesson for them. He said, I say unto you, you are Peter, and the gates of hell, it should be translated, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against the church. There is a sign there that says hell. When's the last time you saw a road sign giving you directions to that? <laughs> but that sign is there. It, again, I, it should say Hades, but they put hell on it. Go back to the one right before. You see that big cave in there? It is believed that that was referred to years back in Jesus' time as the gates of Hades. And if you could see closely, I didn't put the close-up pictures, there are niches carved out all around on both sides of that opening where idols would be placed. And this was a place where pagan idol worship took place. And the sacrifices they would make to those pagan idols, they would cast down into that cave because right past its opening, it literally went down. And that this may have been the gates of Hades that Jesus pointed to when he made this phrase. That's speculation, I don't know, but that's what's there if you go to visit that place. Interesting. But the point is this. Peter was a little rock. Jesus was the solid rock. But the bedrock that the church was to be built upon was the confession that Peter made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wasn't going to build the church on Peter. He was going to build the church upon himself. He's the chief cornerstone. Peter would later say, we're all living stones and Jesus is the chief cornerstone in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 6. And the angel said, you go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. You're about to see a rock redeemed. You remember Peter, the one who said, Lord, I'll never deny you. These other guys might, but, but, but I'll even die for you if I have to. <laughs> you remember Peter. Who denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times that very night, even as Jesus said that he would. The angel said, go, tell his disciples and Peter. This is a wonderful touch. What a gentle, tender word this is. The last time we saw Peter in this gospel account, he's weeping bitterly in the darkness of the night. After not denying his Lord three, three times. I mean, what a tender thing it is for the angel to say to these women, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he goes before you to Galilee. That puts Peter right back into the apostolic band. Remember, it was Peter who preached the first sermon on the opening day of the church, on the day of Pentecost. It was Peter that became one of the most dynamic leaders of the early church. It was Peter who was given the privilege of, pre of penning one of the most beloved epistles in the New Testament. It was Peter 
who when he was about to be crucified himself requested that he be crucified upside down, not feeling worthy to be crucified in the exact same manner as his Lord had been. The resurrection meant the single rock was removed. The solid rock, Jesus, was renewed. And the sinful rock, Peter, was redeemed. And it doesn't matter who you are, those two words, and Peter, means there's hope for every one of us. Praise God for that. Because of the resurrection, we have the opportunity to be redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the risen Lamb of Christ Jesus. One last thing, in verse 8, the final verse of Mark's Gospel, most likely your Bible has a notation in brackets or something saying something like this, that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have verses 9 through 20. Okay? And a lot of trusted Bible scholars believe verses 9 through 20 were added later on by a scribe. That Mark's actual writing ended with verse 8. So here's verse 8. When they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and astonishment had seized them, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They became the first eyewitnesses. They went out, they fled from the tomb, and they went and told the disciples. Trembling and astonished and afraid, not afraid, I don't think that something bad was going to happen to them, overwhelmed, didn't know how to express it. They can't give a rational explanation for the realities that have now dawned on their understanding. They're so stunned. And Dr. John MacArthur said, here's the proof that they were stunned. They were women and they said nothing to anyone. <laughs> I quoted him, okay? All right. So how stunned were they? Matthew says they went and told his disciples. Luke says they went back and told the disciples, but that they didn't believe the women. John says that he and Peter took off running to see for themselves. Mr. David Hunt said, Neither Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, nor any of the world's other religions make any pretense that its founder is still alive. For Christianity, however, the resurrection is the very heart of the gospel. If Christ did not raise from the dead, then the whole thing's a fraud. Nor did Jesus tell his disciples to go to far off Siberia or South Africa to preach his resurrection where no one could challenge that claim. He told them to begin in Jerusalem. Where had he not risen from the dead, a short walk to the grave just outside the city wall could have proven that he was still dead. And Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. In 2010, I got to stand in that empty tomb. It's still empty. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord, and that makes all the difference.
And if you've never accepted that message, let me tell you, that's the greatest news the world has ever heard. That we have a risen Lord who died to save us so we could raise from the dead and live eternally with Him. Amen? Boy, that was excitement. Amen? Amen. Yes! And that's the news we need to share with people. They can live forever because He's risen. That's what this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day is about. If you need to make a public decision to accept Christ as Lord and Savior today, I would encourage you to meet me down front as we stand and sing, or any other decision that you want to make public because of your faith in Christ Jesus, you can meet me down front. We're going to sing, He is Lord. Let's stand.